Hello, everyone. I am Jennifer Braverman. And I'm Ellen Selm. And welcome to our podcast, Stories from the Earth, where we explore humankind's relationship and connection with the natural world. We'd like to take a quick moment to invite our listeners to consider supporting us through a humble little donation. If you go to our anchor page, click the support button. There are options to donate for $1, $5, or $10 a month. The donation goes towards helping us with future projects such as launching an herbal educational curriculum. We've dubbed the People's Herb School, as well as funding to help take the show on the road and do on-site reviews and interviews at herb farms, schools, and other interesting places relevant to the podcast. You can also support us by leaving a, um, a rating and and a review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, every little yeah. bit helps. <laughs> so. Today we are continuing our chat review of the book Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist and Other Essays by Paul Kingsnorth. This book has a lot of discussion-worthy subject matter, and really, honestly, saying that sounds like an understatement. So we are covering it over the course of a few episodes, and today is part two. If you're curious of what is this book, who is this author, go back and listen to part one, because we uh, do all of that sort of intro in that episode. Yes. Yes. There is there is quite a lot of chat about who Paul Kingsworth is. And that is uh, just the last episode, so not too far back with this one. Um, the first right. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year, right? The, we, <laughs> uh, we are definitely starting off the new year. Uh, this book is a bit serious, uh, on a serious note, so, you know, but that's okay. <laughs> Something to maybe inspire New Year's resolutions by. Oh, yes, I think there's a bunch. <laughs> That would be a good video. It would be a good little, like, um, uh, yeah, a good little video about, like, um, New Year's resolutions in inspired by, um, you know, this book. Ooh. This book. I could probably think of a better title. <laughs> um, okay, so some updates. Um, number one, we are due to um, various life circumstances and other things we are going to one podcast a month like one book chat one official like one interview whatever how, it may be yes there how, will be one of them. yes however um in i guess that second slot that i have ideas and plans and schemes to add something extra. So it won't be like a traditional interview. It won't be like a book chat. It'll be something else that mm -hmm. sort of um, ties in with what we're doing and maybe expands on uh, some sort of thing with one of our past guests. So something exciting um, once I get a new camera and it becomes warmer outside and also like I can connect more with our past guests so we'll, we'll see what happens there's it's like a brainstorming Just, um uh, wait in suspense until then yes it's been it's been like driving me crazy like, for like probably a year so <laughs> these ideas they rattle out of my brain and drive me crazy so it's, you, you must do them <sighs> it's been a little okay. uh reflecting on the last year there was something 
don't remember what it was, but there was something I was having to look up not too long ago from a previous episode. And so like I was like scrolling back to find that episode and then I was like scrolling back and scrolling back and scrolling back and I'm like, dang, I've done a lot. That's pretty darn cool. We've talked to some really cool people and read some really good books and it's just nice to look back and survey the the work, you know, because it's fun. So it doesn't really feel like work in some ways. And then you know, and then until you're in the slog of it, I'm sure, especially with your uh, editing skills. But then it's like, it's like you were even saying you listen back and you're like, oh, no, I did do a good job editing. It's like, yeah, we did a good job. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. So be sure you browse the entire catalog, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. The older episodes, the new, the older ones, the warning, they're not edited. So, but that's <laughs> fine. Really, really old. So really, really old ones. But I really would love day one to one day would love to go back and, and edit them, but they're they're very cool. Don't skip them because they're all interviews with herbalists. But yeah, it's funny how like, it, it just, you know, it, it takes a lot of work, but like once everything's put together and then I'm listening to the episode we put out, it's weird. I, I don't, I didn't think I had this ability, but like I listen to, I'm involved in the episode in three different ways because like I'm here recording and then I'm editing. So I'm like a different shift editing hat on (laughs) and um and then I'm I'm then I'm at work and I'm listening to it so I'm having my listening hat on it's just it's just like so I'm like hearing different things I'm seeing different pieces and yeah I'm always surprised that came out much better than I (laughs) that's actually really good who are these really cool smart people who talk about interesting things I've got to subscribe to them oh wait that's me A really cool year and um, you know i'd like to thank everyone for everyone's support both guests and listeners so we can't do it without you happy new year and we have our 50th anniversary sorry anniversary oh. <laughs> our 50th yeah kind of our 50th good for our age <laughs> <laughs> we do don't we our 50th episode coming up soon so we have something special planned for that I'm pretty excited about Part two of this book, because he himself divides the book into three sections, and part two of the book is withdrawal is the theme. So, what do all the essays kind of have in common? Would you say, like, what, how, how do you feel like it ties into the, that heading? So, we didn't talk about the first group of essays and what they had in common, but it was well, the oh, first collapse. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was collapsed. Then all these essays are written at different times and different publications. These essays deal with how to think about the issues of climate change and also the environmental movement and how it's changed through time. And then like a person's role in all this, like just a person like you and I, just like a regular Joe, (laughs) Jane. It's about laying the groundwork before taking action, even if that action is to do nothing, to literally withdraw from action in the conventional way to think that one would think about taking action or stand or to fight against something. So it's like, okay, this is the situation. What do I do about it? You know, he really like talks about action versus inaction. Yeah, I feel like he goes a lot into like, action is another man's inaction in a way. Right, and then that, that inaction 
maybe actually your action, which may be actually good. Just in itself, yeah. The first part of the book was all under the heading of collapse, and the quotes that we pulled from the book at that point illustrated sort of the, the central focus to put in the words of David Byrne, like, well, how did I get here? Or I guess in this case, we, how did we, the collective we get here? And But the second section is withdrawal. And while it's basically just an honest, straightforward personal admission on Paul's part as to his shift in perspective and his shift in his way of living and approach to activism, or recusing himself thereof in, in a, some sense in the approach to the whole matter. It's putting down into words what so many others in the movement, quote unquote, either don't wish to talk about or possibly haven't even thought about. I mean, I found it's not only really a bold move, I think, but it's sort of a guidepost erected for the considerations of the passersby that, that might have needed it pointed out and didn't know they needed it pointed out in a way. Like, because he's willing to stick his neck out there and put the stuff down into writing that other people might just tippy-toe around, you know? And, and it doesn't come off in any way as like, ha-ha, I'm such a rebel. Listen to me. I have all the answers. So he's very, very straightforward about, like, this This is just me. Like, I can't deal with this stuff anymore, and here's how I've, here's the conclusion I came to whatever maybe i'm just shouting into a void like he he did he doesn't really write it in a way i feel like that's like trying to be edgy and make people go along with him you know just a little like, i mean it comes <laughs> like it comes across just a smidge, edgy, but, but mostly not it comes across as edgy but it comes across as it's edgy only because he's venting yeah and whether yeah. or not anyone gave two <laughs> raps about it is beside the it's a good it's a good rant actually yeah. i think you could summarize this whole book as it's an excellent an excellent rant like, very eloquent rant a very eloquent rant. <laughs> like um i'll be like typing in a quote and google docs will be like that that punctuation is wrong and i'm like no that's how he wrote it so one of y'all is wrong <laughs> like i'm double checking and i'm like and I'm like, stop using semicolons. It's harder to type them. Anyway. Like if I have to think about what emotions the book makes me feel, I'd really just have to admit that it kind of gives me a level of relief or maybe even like exoneration in the fact that I just, I realized a few years ago for my own mental health and sort of existential wrestling and existence in this world that that I have the need or the desire or even the imperative to withdraw more in ways that he sort of discusses in this section of the book. And I have to have, I, I had to have that same sort of mental grappling with the notion of it being construed by some as just a giving up or a throwing in the towel or being mm -hmm. an armchair person, so to speak. And, and no one ever said any of that to me, but it's like my own part of my own brain was like browbeating me for it. And then I, you know, was reading this book and I was like, oh, oh, I'm not the only one. Okay. Somebody's making this make more sense by putting it into words. That's great. That's great. But also it sounds like sometimes the people, the actions that people do make things worse. Yeah. Like the quote unquote good actions or whatever. So mm -hmm. it's, it's complicated. He's trying to, in his own way, hold up a 
mirror to some of that, I think, so that maybe people would ask themselves, like, one, do I really want to be doing this? And two, is it even actually accomplishing anything? You know, is there a tangible result? You know, and if there is, great, keep doing it. You know, and if you like doing it, great, keep doing it. But he was just basically saying, here's where he was at, what he didn't feel was working anymore. Right. Know? Yeah. And we're definitely going to go into that a little more yeah. detail. So I wanted to chat a bit about the cover of the book and the art and the title, because this is the, you can see the, yes, the cover on, if you're watching on YouTube. It's understated. Yeah. So it's a black cover with kind of a greeny, yellowy words, and that's it. They're bold, blocky, all caps print. And so I think that the title, like, I was like, I feel like it, so it's, it's Confessions of Recovering Environmentalists and Other Essays. And I felt like it, you know, definitely suggests that there's something past environmentalism. And it's a bit spicy sounding because <laughs> the word confessions in the title. Ooh. And it totally, it, the title's totally not something I would like normally have picked up just by the title alone because it sounds like a made for TV movie. I was just thinking about <laughs> confessions of a, a TV confessions, all those like really like. Like you could hear the voice of the old host of like Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. Right, we're going to be. The confessions of a former environmentalist. (laughs) And a little mystery, right? Yeah. So it sounds very cheesy in one sense. Um, However, the the black cover and the title only artwork um, sort of, it does offset the cheesiness. And the title makes me very curious about what the book is really about. Because it's just like, when you look at it, you're like, hmm. And they're like, wait a second. This is might have some deeper shit in here, but it is it is pretty ballsy because it's just people spend a lot of, yeah, but people spend a lot of money designing covers, right? Yeah. And it's like he's like, I want a black cover. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't actually know if this is was part of his decision or not because usually it's like the publisher makes these decisions. Mm. I think I don't know how much he said. Hey, do it this in way. In that case, I could see the publisher was probably like, boom, boom, bold in your face. Yeah. No nonsense. Here you go. It is what it says. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's like, yeah, I, I want this. We need to do it. It's in my contract or something. I don't, I really <laughs> don't know how these things, these things happen, but yeah. I, I can't say it wasn't anything that I wouldn't have ever thought to pick up because I mean, I did pick it up, you did pick it up. because of the title, but these days I think a title like that would be referred to as clickbait if it was in digital form, but that just wasn't really a term floating around back when this book first got published. So, you know, we can excuse it of that fact. There's no denying that the title is meant to grab one's attention, I would say. I mean, or maybe even to kind of poke some buttons and rile people up. Uh, The reason it stood out to me, though, was because, like I said, I had stumbled across it at a time when I was sort of also wrestling in my mind with that withdrawing sort of feeling and just as a concept and it was causing me a lot of sort of background mental anguish and then i saw this title not having a clue exactly what was going to be in it per se as in like what approach it was going to take which made me curious and then i found out it, it made me have some hope and that perhaps that there are words to some of these things that i was struggling with reconciling so hopefully others that read it would 
you know, find that as well. <laughs> In my like a little added intro to our last ep episode on this book, um, I said that I felt like he was putting words to like thought to like feelings and things that were more that I was experiencing, but I couldn't put words to. So I just thought that was a really cool thing that was going on. You know, sometimes I just do not have the head for this, which is why I have to write all the quotes down. But like, you know, some people who are like really good at trivia and stuff, some people are just like really good at remembering quotes. And I, I wish that my head was like that so that I'll, anytime I read these like really good things where I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, finally, somebody put it into words for me, how I feel, that I could just like at the drop of a hat if I needed to like go through the roster in my head of it and like shuffle it around and pull those things out you know on a whim when i needed it but oh well i guess that's why you have a giant library is you just <laughs> pull the book out and flip it open anytime you need to remember i think with some things i i can i can do that um, i'll remember the feeling it gave me more than the specific words usually yes although we do have some quotes written down so you could just go to your oh. handy, handy doc on uh, the computer I'm just the casual quoter. <laughs> the casual quoter. Ooh, that's a that's a good quote. A good, uh, like a like a t-shirt or something, or a um, a store name. <laughs> when I was looking up uh, additional like sort of questions we could answer about this book, I came across a a weird one. It's what did you Google while reading this book? And I was like, oh yeah, mm, okay. So I looked up how long ago the dandelion appeared, it's like millions of years ago, wow. uh, according to Wikipedia. Uh, the Romans and the, you know, the Greeks, and apparently we, the, it was brought over to North America by Europeans. Um, I think it's it's not native. So, um, and then. So it seems like at this point, it's probably almost everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it probably is. And then I looked up uh, the books of by Wendell Berry. And I also looked up the Dark Mountain Project. To see more about what it is or that it was still around and stuff. Yeah, so I didn't, I think I didn't speak to it. I put the link, the links on the last episode's notes. But basically, you could do a subscription. They put out a hardcover book, like color, hardcover book. It's a collection of different authors. They write on a topic, a theme. And I think it's fall and it's either like twice a year or it's like four times a year they put out a book. And some of the older ones you can only get as PDF, but and it looks really cool and they do like on their website they do like a whole hour with the all the authors oh, nice. talking about the the issue but it's um it's still along the tenets of the original right yeah dark mountain project so um yeah i would encourage anyone to really look that up especially if you read this book and then you're wanting to find more people of somewhat like mind that would be the right avenue yeah and i really want to I would love to get a subscription um, and they take submissions. So if you even want to like try to write something for them, there's information up there. I just had to Google what, and I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but 
think it's pretty much said how it's spelled, what Umiad at Tours was, because he references it in a quote that I've chosen to share here in a moment, but it's referencing something called the Battle at Tours, wherein some Frankish Spaniards were fighting off an invading Muslim conquest army at the time, a long, long, long time ago. Not really relevant at, uh, at all to the quote, honestly. In the end, I think he could have made his point without saying that statement. It's not really relevant to the book either, but it just stood out to me because I didn't have the slightest guess of what he was referring to, so I looked it up. Now we know. So when I say the quote, we'll all go, oh. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I don't even remember that one. So uh, sometimes I'm really bad and I'll skip things that I can't pronounce. You know, forget I did it. Or I'll insert other words. Like, I know what this one means. So That's we'll fine. just go with that. <laughs> Find a different comparison. Burden of knowing too many words. <laughs> Yet not enough. <laughs> so of your suggested questions to choose from. I liked the idea of what would you ask the author about this book if given the opportunity, because we had hoped to interview him, but he's sort of taking a break from a lot of the forward-facing online social life podcasts, etc., etc. He was nice enough to write back and, and say he's not available, so that's cool, um, but he's not available. So in that sense, honestly, I kind of started loosely keeping up with his other writings and reflections on things. Um, first via his Facebook before he left that medium and then his website and a little bit of his um, Substack and other online blogs that he's been printed in. So I have a little bit more of a sense of where he's at now since publishing this Confessions book. Interestingly, he's become religious. He's embracing and exploring an, an older denomination style of Christianity considering the path that his life has now taken and the perspective that he now no doubt has helping illuminate things in his mind, I would just be curious to know how much of this Confessions book he still might even relate to or agree with. I mean, does he look at it more as sort of a time capsule of where he was in his life and his thinking then, like at the time the essays were written? Or does he feel like some of that is still just kind of right where his thoughts are, uh, where the book sort of left him? Or is he carrying on with life into a worldview that he feels has grown beyond it in some ways? I mean, at the time of putting this book together, you know, he probably never fathomed where he'd be now. And if so, does he feel like it's for the better? Like, I just wonder if he could write like a 2.0 follow-up to this book, what would he have to say now, you know, if he if he brought a newly religious perspective into it even. Like, I'd just be curious to know how his thoughts on the subject might have shifted or not, you know? Because I think a lot of it's still relevant for our times. And I and I know he would at least agree with that much because yeah. there have been more recent writings even since 2020 in the pandemic where he's reflected on some of the things that we're, we'll be quoting here. I don't know, just be interesting because there's enough time has passed, you know? since the printing. So I've got something that might actually answer that question. He did two episodes on this podcast called Death in the Garden. And the latest episode is uh, what was uh, actually came out on my birthday this year, last year, <laughs> October 8th, 2022. Um, and then what if, this is Paul Kingsworth, what if we were wrong and other questions we can't face? 
Um, and I, I really believe that he does speak to some of your questions about what he still believes. It was really interesting because I'm not really up on anything Bible related or Christianity related, except for like, you know, the pop culture Christianity of Christmas lights and Santa Claus and mm -hmm. all just just the surface level, but he's really into like the, the these theories yeah. and he's he's like tied it together with this uh, earth centric like an earth earth centric view but he yeah. has a different term for it and egocentric oh yeah egocentrism view that i felt was very interesting so i'll post a link to that podcast he's been on their podcast twice i'm not jealous i'm fine <laughs> <laughs> the host of that podcast both of the hosts they seem very more literate in uh christianity and the theories behind it mm. to, um so they could have that discussion a little more in depth. Well, we're coming to some good quotes here. Okay. Uh, we'll kind of move through it in their order of appearance in the book, more or less, um, in terms of topics. So his first chapter, or one of the first chapters is called Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist. So, Yeah, so this is uh, the first essay, and um, it's really about what an environmentalist is and apparent and there are two ideas that he presents one is sort of more mainstream and i guess one is more like his personal take on it which seems a lot less popular um among the environmentalists people who are environmentalists as a whole and i never thought about it before i was just like oh yeah i know what that is i know what environmentalists i know what they do not only is he great to quote, he also always starts his essays with quotes from other people. And this quote is, some see nature all ridicule and deformity, some, and some scarcely see nature at all, but to the eyes of a man of imagination. Nature is imagination itself. And that is by William Blake. And I really like that quote. All right, yeah, so we'll just, we'll just jump into it. Today's environmentalism is as much a victim of the contemporary cult of utility as every other aspect of our lives from science education. We are not environmentalists now because we have an emotional reaction to the wild world. In this country, most of us wouldn't even know where to find it. We are environmentalists now in order to promote something called sustainability. And then further on, it could be all that, but it probably isn't. It's probably me. I'm 37 now. The world is smaller, more tired, more fragile, more horribly complex and full of troubles. Or rather, the world is the same as it ever was, but I'm more aware of it and of the reality of my place within it. I've grown up and there's nothing to be done about it. The worst part of it is that I can't seem to look without thinking anymore. And now I know far more about what we are doing. We, the people, I know what we, have, we are doing all over the world to everything all the time. I know why the magic is dying. It's me, it's us. And I just, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, this is one of the ones that I really felt like I had, I think, a lot along these lines, a lot. And it's funny that he mentions he's 37. And basically, I think he's only like a couple years older than me. So I'm like, he is literally my contemporary. He's not 37 anymore. This was a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he's like, maybe, maybe five years older than me which is, is really crazy to think about. <laughs> and maybe one of the reasons why like you and I uh, kind of also feel like we get what he's saying. Because we've sort of, been more in the same. Yeah, growing up at the same generational time. time frame of what's going on in the world. Yeah, yeah it's funny because I'm used to thinking about people are so much older. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh wait, no, it's not, it's not true anymore. <laughs> maybe the world is the same. I'm just more aware of, of it. Mm -hmm. And it, it just makes, it speaks to like these things going on for such a long time. But when you're younger, you sort of don't know. Yeah. That's kind of what his, the next little quote you pulled out. Ah, yes. Yes. It became apparent at that point that what I saw was the next, as the next phase of the human attack, on the non-human world, a lot of my environmentalist friends saw as progressive, sustainable, and green. What I call destruction, they called large-scale solutions. The stuff, this stuff was realistic, necessary, urgent. It went with the grain of human nature and the markets, which, as we know, are the same thing. Very much the same thing, people. Very much. Very. Mm. We don't have time to romanticize the woods and the hills. There were emissions to re there there were emissions to reduce, and the end justifies the means. He's starting to get kind of disillusioned. Yes, yes. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Is a whole bunch of wind farms actually the way to go, or like, is there a better way to 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 do it? I don't, I actually don't know if we, we quote this part out, but so we want to get off fossil fuels, right? So the answer is, oh, do we do, we do wind and solar, right? That makes a lot of sense. But like we do wind, we're building these huge, huge turbines. But when we're do, building the turbines, are we actually doing more damage in another sense to other bits of nature? Just so right. that we have- The machinations of humanity are always a domino effect is kind just, of his point <laughs> regardless of what it is and how good the intention was at the outset i was like oh yeah yeah that's a good thing to think about he know. says we're not environmentalists now because we have an emotional reaction to the wild world in this country most of us wouldn't even know where to find it we're environmentalists now in order to emote something called sustainability what does this curious plastic word mean it does not mean defending the non-human world from the ever-expanding empire of Homo sapiens sapiens, though some of its adherents like to pretend that it does, even to themselves. It means sustaining human civilization at the comfort level that the world's rich people, us, feel as is their right, 
without destroying the natural capital or the resource base that is needed to do so. It is, in other words, an entirely human-centered piece of politicking disguised as concern for the planet. And in the very short term, just over a decade, this worldview has become all-pervasive. It's voiced by the president of the USA and the president of the Anglo-Dutch shell and many people in between. The success of environmentalism has been total at the price of its soul. Ooh. Let me offer up just one example of how this pack test worked. If sustainability is about anything, it's about carbon, carbon and climate change. And to listen to most environmentalists today, you would think that that's the only things in the world worth talking about. The business of sustainability is the business of preventing carbon emissions. Carbon emissions threaten a potentially massive downgrading at our prospects for material advancement as a species. They threaten an unacceptable erosion of our resource base and put at risk our vital hordes of natural capital. All this is true. If we cannot sort this out quickly, we're going to end up darning our socks again and growing our own carrots and holidaying in Weston Supermar and other such unthinkable things. All of the horrors that our grandparents left behind will return like deathless legends. Carbon emissions must be tackled like a drunk with a broken bottle, quickly and with maximum force. Don't get me wrong, I don't doubt the potency of climate change to undermine the human machine. It looks to me as if it's already beginning to do so, and that it's too late to do anything but attempt to mitigate the worst effects. What I'm convinced of is that the fear of losing both the comfort and the meaning that our civilization gifts us has gone to the heads of the environmentalists to such a degree that they forgot everything else. The carbon must be stopped, like Umiyada tours, or all will be lost. This reductive approach to the human environmental challenge leads to an obvious conclusion. If carbon is the problem, zero carbon is the solution. Society needs to go about its business without spewing that stuff out. It needs to do this quickly by any means necessary, building up the right kind of energy technologies quickly enough to generate all this power that we need without producing greenhouse gases. And then there will be no need to ever turn the lights off and no need to ever slow down. Yeah, that's what I was talking I'm about. Cheek a little bit. Yeah. Wrong? No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because you can't you can't slow down the machine. You know, you can't you can't stop the progress. It's kind of like point putting it out there that it's like if all we're focusing on is like, oh, we gotta come up with the next thing to fix the next thing and do the next thing. And it's like we're not even the idea of slowness and simplicity isn't even being entertained in the conversation, you know, which, which itself can be very valuable. Mm -hmm. Extremely. That's probably the biggest point that he's stressing through this whole section of the book, really, in a way, you know? Yeah. Like why, I mean, is, is growing carrots necessarily bad or darning socks? I mean, and having the time to do either one. Yeah. Like technology itself is not necessarily bad it's just it's, like money isn't actually the root of all evil it's how it's getting used you know what, like whatever society decides to value and our society has decided to value these these things and they're destructive this is his view he was trying to like figure out i guess his ideas about how he felt about nature and like how to encapsulate it humans roles in it and and so he i don't know if he coined the term but he decided to use this term 
and it's called um, eco-centrism. Centrism? Mm -hmm. This word crystallized everything I had been feeling for years. I had no idea there were words for it or that other people felt it too or had written intimidation books about it. Probably meant to say intimidating. I probably did. <laughs> intimidating books about it. That sounds more like... <laughs> there was a man, and he's talking about Wordsworth, um, moved to love and fear by mountains who believed rocks had souls that nature never did betray the heart that loved her. Now, I declared to myself, if no one else, that I was egocentric too. This was not the same as being egocentric, though some disagreed. And though it sounded a bit too much like um, eccentric, eccentric. <laughs> this was also a distraction. I was egocentric because I did not believe and have never believed I don't think that humans were the center of the world, that the earth was their play playground and that they had the right to do what they liked or even that what they did was that important. I thought we were part of something bigger, which has as much right to the world as we did and which we were stomping on for our own benefit. This ecocentrism in, in simple language, the love of place, the human humility, the sense of belonging, the feeling was absent from most of the environmental talk, environmentalist talk I had heard around me. Hmm. So when I, when I thought about um, this thing about oh, well, what humans did maybe wasn't even that important and that we were like stomping on the, you know, everything else, everything else for, for our benefit, my work built a new warehouse. And I'm assuming in order to build it, they cleared a piece of land that previously, I believe, had trees and woods and was lightly wooded, um, sort of close to, you know, it's in in town. So there's, we we're fortunate that there's some woods still around, but it's not, it's not slightly wooded. And um, so at lunch, one day, I was sort of attempting to sort of explore a little bit because uh, I lost my fabulous picnic table with the like oh, no. 100 plus year old trees that I had to sit uh, under, which is a kind of a real bummer. Do they still um, give the employees some outside space set up somewhere? So we have two picnic tables inside the warehouse, which I'm assuming are going to go outside at some point. But so, but there's a, there's a place that's still kind of like it's place cleared and then there's some woods. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to walk out there and see what, you know, and I'm just walking a little bit. Okay. And suddenly in the woods, I see this animal just bring up and like jump away. And I'm like, that was a deer, a big deer, just like, and then I realized that they're like deer because the ground was soft. So there was like deer tracks where I had been sort of like walking out. And I was like, oh, me, because I was reading this book and I was like, 
did we take the deers home? <laughs> but it was so close and it was big and it, but I, I wasn't, you know, like I was just so shocked. I was like, whoa, but anyway, so that's, that was my thought. Um, yeah. you know, just to build our big old box. I mean, probably, I mean, Yeah, I think that next quote you pulled out is kind of a little tongue-in-cheek reflection on where the state of sometimes activism is blindsided to that sort of thing. Just the more, I don't know, emotional, touchy-feely, poetic even side of stuff is kind of edged out of the movement now, I think, is what his main gripe about it is. <laughs> it's definitely devalued. So here's, here's the quote. Um, the real issue, it seemed, was not the human relationship with the non-human world. It was fat cats and bankers and capitalism, spelled C-A-P-L-I-S-M. Well, you know, he's in England. You can hear the, the accent, right? Oh, oh, okay. I thought he was just being, I think he was being silly, but you know, <laughs> these things must be destroyed by ways of marches, protests, and votes for fringe political parties to make way for something known as eco-socialism, a conflation of concepts that pretty much guarantees the instant hostility of 95% of the population. <laughs> yeah, you just throw that word socialism in there and there you, you've lost the collective's interest. Uh, well, I guess the other 5% is like, ooh, I'm more interested. <laughs> so today's environmentalism is about people. It is an emerging, sorry, it is an engineering challenge, a problem solving device for people to whom the sight of a wild, uh oh, now this word I should have looked up, it's P E N N I N E, hilltop, on a clear winter day brings not feelings of transcendence, but thoughts about the wasted potential for renewable energy. Is about saving civilization from the results of our own actions. A desperate attempt to prevent Gaia from hiccuping and wiping out our coffee shops and broadband connections. It is our last hope. Yeah, continuing that sort of train of thought, he said, uh, and this is another word I looked up, chancel is referring to like an altar. So environmentalism's chancel is as accommodating as that of socialism, anarchism, or conservatism. Um, it's just as capable of generating poisonous internal bickering that will last until the death of the sun. <laughs> I couldn't help but chuckle at that because I've, I've been involved in the, some activism circles or two and and usually and the reason i just drop back out is because of that internal bickering it's just like really many people who call themselves green have little time for the mainstream line that i'm attacking here but it is the mainstream line and it's how most people see environmentalism today even if it's not how all environmentalists intended to be seen these are the arguments and the positions uh, that popular environmentalism that's now a global force offers up in its quest for redemption. There are reasons. There's always reasons. But whatever they are, they've led the greens down a dark, litter-strewn, dead-end street where the bins overflow, the light bulbs have blown, and the stray dogs are very hungry indeed. What is to be done about this? 
probably nothing. It was perhaps inevitable that a utilitarian society would generate a utilitarian environmentalism, and inevitable, too, that the Greens would not be able to last for long outside of the established political bunkers. But for me, now, this is no longer mine, and that's all. I can't make my peace with people who cannibalize the land in the name of saving it, and I can't speak the language of science without a corresponding poetry. I can't speak with a straight face about saving the planet when what I really mean is saving myself from what's coming. Like all of us, I'm a foot soldier of empire. It is the empire of Homo sapiens, and it stretches from Tasmania to Baffin Island. Like all empires, it's built on expropriation and exploitation, and like all empires, it dresses these things up in a language of morality and duty. When we turn wilderness over to agriculture, when we speak of our duty, we will speak of our duty to feed the poor. When we industrialize wild places, we speak of our duty to stop the climate from changing. When we spear whales, we speak of our duty to science. And when we raise forests, we speak of our duty to develop. We alter the atmospheric makeup of the entire world. Half of us pretends it's not happening and the other half immediately starts looking for new machines that can reverse it. This is how empires work particularly when they've started to decay. Denial, displacement, anger, and fear. Which seems like a lot of where we've collectively been at in, I don't know, I'd say, well, I would say at least increasingly so since the 90s, but he's a little older than me, so maybe the cusp of it started sooner than that because he was already kind of backing away from some of his involvements. I don't know. Um, but I feel like there was still a good boom in like the 80s and 90s of the, oh, we feel so good. Save the whales. Climate summits. Blah, blah, blah. And it, and oh, yeah. those things are still happening now, but uh, there's a little more of a hard reality that's settling in at the same time. <laughs> well, I just found out via another excellent podcast called uh called bad faith um that they the military makes a lot of emissions like causes a lot of climate emissions but even in the paris agreement no military contributions to the climate crisis is counted so in other words they'll say oh gosh here's the numbers and they're bad by the way, there's no more numbers that make it worse, and we're just not going to talk about those. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, she's. Mm. Well, that, that, uh, that sets right up uh, the little second part of that quote, which is the environment is the victim of this empire. The environment, that distancing word, that empty concept does not exist. It's the air, the water is, the creatures we make homeless or lifeless in flocks and legions, and it's us too. We are it. We are in it and of it. We make it and we live it. We are fruit and soil and tree, and the things done to the roots and the leaves come back to us. We make ourselves slaves to make ourselves free, and when the shackles start to rub, we confidently predict the emergence of a new, more comfortable design. I don't have any answers, if by answers we mean political systems or better machines or means of engineering some grand shift in consciousness. All I have is a personal conviction built on those feelings, those responses, that goes back to the moors of northern England and the rivers of southern Borneo, that something big is being missed. 
that we're both hollow men and stuffed men and that we will keep stuffing ourselves until the food runs out. And if outside the dining room door we've made a wasteland, we will call it a necessity, then at least we will know we're not to blame because we're never to blame because we're humans. What am I to do with feelings like these? Useless feelings in a world in which everything must be useful. Sensibilities in a world of utility. Feelings like this provide no solution. They build no new eco-homes. They remove no carbon from the atmosphere. This is head-in-the-cloud stuff as relevant to our busy modern lives as the new moon or the day of Lunasa. Easy to ignore, easy to dismiss, like the places that inspire the feelings, like the world outside of the bubble, like the people who haven't seen it, if only in brief flashes before the ridge of some dark line on the hills. So, like, the the whole thing about, like, um, these things don't have any value, like the, you know, the, the the new moon or you know mm-hmm. the what is it the head in the clouds stuff which you know it just makes me think of a good example would be a piece a piece of land according to the bank mm. has no value unless there's a house on it really silly that something only something has the value based on what the humans would do with it yeah kind of like how in this country in some states you don't get water rights with your property, even if you own the property outright, uh, or you don't, uh, which, you know, yeah, in a dry state where people arguably shouldn't even be living because they're destroying the aquifer. Um, I can understand, you know, why, you know, if you have limited water resources, somebody's got to control it to make sure everybody gets a little drop of it, right? But then you also might not have mineral rights, which means companies can come into your land at any time and drill for oil or do fracking because they want to, you know, like stuff like that, where it's just like the value is only in as much as what is somebody, what is a human going to get out of it? He, he says, but this is fine. (laughs) The dismissal, the platitudes, the brusque moving on of the grown-ups. It's all fine. I withdraw, you see. I withdraw from the campaigning and the marching. I withdraw from the arguing and the talked-up necessity of the false assumptions. I withdraw from the words, I'm leaving. I'm going to go out walking. I'm leaving on a pilgrimage to find what I left behind in the jungles and by the cold campfires and in the parts of my head and my heart that I've been skirting around because I've been busy fragmenting the world in order to save it. Busy believing it's mine to save. I'm going to listen to the wind and see what it tells me, or whether it tells me anything at all. You see, it turns out that I have more time than I thought, and I will follow the song lines and see what they sing to me, and maybe one day I might even come back, and if I'm very lucky, I might bring with me a harvest of fresh tales, which I can scatter about like apple seeds across this tired and angry land. It resonated with me, the tongue-in-cheek, when he was saying this brusque moving on of the grown-ups because it reminded me of part of a poem of mine that I had turned into a a song at one point in a band I was in. And it was also very tongue-in-cheek, trying to have it from memory because it's been a little while since I wrote it or sang it. But I said, don't you bite the hand that feeds you. Don't speak unless the grown-ups ask you. Always wash your hands for supper, sharpen your bayonets, and prepare for slaughter. March in time with all the others. Jailhouse, schoolhouse, workhouse, bunkers, a punch in presence with no essence, framing the dollar that gets you started. Seems in spirit of this chapter of the 
to his book. <laughs> but yeah, when you when you put the schoolhouse jailhouse work together, it's just really kind of sometimes it feels like oh, it's a good setup for the next section of the book. <laughs> The poet in the machine was this next chapter. Yeah. I've pulled a quote from the section. He says, perhaps the answer is summed up by Thomas Dillon, whose famous injunction to rage, rage against the dying of the light calls angrily for the last stand, even when the battle's clearly lost. That's part of it, I think. A determination to fight for what is good and right, to fight against the encroachments of the machine, even though you know that the machine doesn't die and only ever slumbers, takes blows but always rises again, because the machine is us and part of us loves it, even when it's taking our world apart. What does this mean in practice? It means, I think, respecting the past, its tools and its technologies and our connection to it, the fact that it continues to live in us without collapsing into nostalgia for it. That's an important point. It means understanding that nothing is coming back, that the future will be very different from then and now, but that the future will be very different from how we recently understood it to be also. Not only will we not be getting those jetpacks and moon bases that I was hoping for as a child, we will not be getting the pensions and secure jobs that I was told to work towards as a student. The future looks more like a feeling around in the dark as our certainties collapse, but it also looks like holding on to whatever we can of the world beyond the human. Anything could happen in the next hundred years. The two extremes? Well, we could devastate the earth and collapse into chaos and run away climate change. Or we could create a global sustainable society based on large-scale renewable tech, mass rollout of GM crops, nanotechnology, geoengineering, a controlled world of controlled people living in closely monitored scientific monoculture, brave new world with wind farms and smartphones. Which would be better? Who would deliberately aim for either? Why do both look frighteningly possible? Faced with these poles, the middle way looks like a stumbling towards the guns armed only with penknives and tin trays, but that's where we are. What it means, I think, is that our task, mine anyway, because I wouldn't want to speak for anyone else, is to save as much of the wild world that can be saved, even if that means buying half an acre of the English woodland and starting a coppice cycle to let the butterflies and birds come back. And it's to practice and to teach ways of being and doing that worked once, work now, and will work tomorrow when the cars look like lumbering airships and the roads have gone to dirt and asphalt and back again. So there's a little there's a little glimmer of his glass half full side of his personality, you could say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like either one of those uh, possible futures he's laid out definitely sound real bad. I guess at least his point is just that middle way looking to him. What it's looking like to him is like, well, that's the best that I can at least control and say that I did my best, you know. So this is one of my favorite quotes. The common poppy, famously, these flowers sprang up all over the battlefields of Flanders where poet Edward Thomas died. Poppy seed can lay dormant in the soil for up to 80 years. It can be paved over, built on, or oversown, and it will wait patiently until the plow or the guns tear up the soil again and breathe life into it. The common poppy flowers where everything is turned upside down. Hmm. Be a poppy in the face of a machine? Question mark. It seems a good task to set myself to watch and learn and save and sow seeds and wait for them to flower. 
knowing that they may not do so in my lifetime. In an age of loss, our task is surely to keep safe what we can when the machine passes by hungry and howling for blood, to be still and stoic and protective and to pass on truths and skills that will always be truths and skills and never forget to remember what we are losing every day that we live. I think that's a really poignant sort of existential coming to terms. Yeah, it really, um, it's like, look it in the eye, look it in the eye. It's hard. Keep looking, keep looking. Cause the moment you don't, you, you could delude yourself. You go into denial, add to the problem, you know, you gotta stay with it. It also talks about like a way of acting because it's like, there are things that are important that we need to hold on to and we need to pass on and people may not be using these skills right now but they may have to use them later because we don't know what the future is going to hold you know how to grow food (laughs) yeah i mean he's kind of making the case for the fact that like at the end of the day there's a base level of survival that is timeless and that's what's important to continue educating ourselves about reminding ourselves what those things are because push come to shove we might need them (laughs) and then it's about a poppy which is about a uh, which is a very bizarre looking plant when i first saw a poppy i was like is that really i love them they're one of my favorites they're so cool I was happy when I learned that my little girl, one of the birth flowers, like associated to her month of birth, is poppy. And I'm like, oh, yay, I love poppy. <laughs> and now, you know, that's a pretty cool thing about them. Very resilient plant. So the next essay is called Learning What to Make of It. And it starts out with two quotes from other people. When we win, it's with small things and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. Uh, and I meant to look up how to pronounce this name. It's, I think it's Reiner Maria Reich. Rainer, Rainer, probably. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is certain gardens are described as retreats when they're actually, when they are really attacks by Ian Hamilton Finlay. Fin- Finlay? That, 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 that quote, the one from Finlay, is kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about how uh, some of the things that people might perceive as an action aren't, and then some that, that people might not perceive as an action actually are like in this case, like gardening as rebellion. I I love that idea. It, it feels like it. This next part, you dubbed a tale of two toilets. I did. Funny. I did. It's a funny section. It's a very funny section. I mean, it's a, it's a very apt analogy. Yes. But when you're talking about toilets and poo, it's always funny, even when you're not seven anymore. So this is a, a tale of two toilets. The flush toilet to me is a worthy metaphor for the civilization I live in. It is convenient, it is easy, it is hygienic, and it is wonderfully warm and dry. It is the most luxurious pooing experience known to man. You can do your business and never have to think about what happens next, 
never have to think about what happens to the feces and the urine that you've just produced. Just if you probably never thought about the origins of the food that created it in the first place. You can act if you like, as if you've never produced it at all, as if you were far too civilized to have engaged in such base and primitive behavior. You can sit in the warmth reading an amusing light-hearted book. Then you can simply press a button and you'll never have to deal with your own shit. What happens to a society that won't deal with his own shit? It ends up deep in it. <laughs> and then the second tale, if a flush toilet is a metaphor for civilization that wants to wash its hands of its own waste, as long as they accumulate somewhere else, then a compost toilet is both a small restitution mm-hmm. and a declaration. I will not turn my back on the consequences of my actions. I will not crap into clean drinking water and flush it down a pipe to be cleaned with industrial chemicals at some sewage plant that I've never visited. I will fertilize my own ground with my own manure and in doing so I will control an important part of my life in this world and that control will give me more understanding over it. I will claw something of myself back even in the rain, even in the winter. I will deal with my own shit. And as anyone who's ever used a composting toilet before, they are pretty pleasant. Oh, I mean, you know, there's all so, kinds of designs out there. Right. Like they have real fancy ones, but, but I did basically, I think it was like a big bucket with a toilet seat on it. And then you put yeah. like, you put like sawdust, but you it wasn't stinky. So yeah. it doesn't have to be complicated people. No. Mm-mm. So this is a section that I have dubbed how to move past the poo, if one was wondering. Accepting the loss and moving through it, dropping old assumptions and thinking afresh allows you to think again about the big question. How can I still be useful? For me, the answer to that question has been at least partly discovered in this place, This, uh, which just means his land he's talking about. After years of living in cities with barely any contact with the ground, fueled by anger and righteousness, driving myself into the ground, I've decided to exchange activism for action. I've decided to dig in, to use my limited powers to improve at least one small square of earth and to write sometimes about what I discovered by doing so. These days when I feel like mounting the attack, these few green acres seem like the best place to plant my weapons because coming here is an attack on myself as well. It is a challenge I issue to the point to the part of me that likes to build abstractions or theories designed to pin the world down and is tempted to issue rallying cries and sketch out easy answers. It says, here is the mess and the complexity and the hard work. Never mind your concepts. Do you know how to use Amatic? And I had some thoughts about all of this. So in reading uh, Paul's move from the city to the country, Um, It makes me think about my own family's move because we moved from New York City to North Carolina when I was nine and how it impacted me more than I knew and really how I wish I could go back in time and tell myself to um, help my mom with her garden. We had like three and a half acres, so she decided to grow a garden and our neighbors who had been farming the land for many generations, they, they helped her. I'd like to talk more with our farming neighbors, be a part of that and learn as much as I could. And I was really like ahead in the book teen, like to read a lot. 
And um, even though I miss seeing the importance of learning how to grow a garden, somehow the essence of the land we lived in did still make an impression on me that I carry with me. So the, the feeling small against big nature and the magic of the land where I grew up has sort of seeped, seemed to have seeped into my bones yeah. and, um, in a way that I can't really, really shake, shake out. And I'm, you know, just really thankful for my parents to just sort of have moved us to this really cool place. It's crazy to think what your perspective could have been like had you not, you know, you, yeah. you would have lost more touch with nature. I mean, inevitably, just by way of the environment you would have been in, the concrete jungle. Definitely, definitely. I mean, we did live with walking distance from park, but it's different. It really is different. It's a different uh, culture. I mean, although granted there are herbalists and people in, in cities, so it's not barren waste. I mean, some, some of it is like, some of it is, is very probably devoid of green. There are also like big, beautiful streets with tree, big, big trees and things like that. So it's, it's, it's a mix, but it's still really different because like out here, it's like nature is the biggest thing. Yeah, a little more wild. Yeah. Can't miss the 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 mountain. The you know, it's just so I you know, I really think a lot about my mom learning to grow tomatoes and corn and potatoes and sort of the rest of our family sort of like um doing a little eye roll and being like, Oh, that's mom's thing, you know. But I you know, I know now how important like mom's thing was and that she had to relearn what could have you know, then been passed on to me and sort of helped repair this like kind of broken chain of information from those old farmers, because I don't know mm. if it's, it's sort of like, even though we weren't their kin, like they were still passing on this knowledge yeah. that we passed on we to them. It with her, yeah. And that could have been part of that, that chain. Um, and it just feels sad. <laughs> and also like, you know, the loss of this knowledge and the loss of like maybe the time spent with my mom, you know, like it makes me want to say like, sorry to my mom. This kind of like relearning is a really important work of our time. Yeah. And more like almost a real work past like our, whatever job we do to make money right now. It's funny because it's like when you're really in the grind, people think like, oh, you want to just run off and play farm, play hobby farm. Like that's your... That's your little dream, your dream life. And it's like, no, that's, that's, that's real living. It was yeah. the weird quasi dream state, hellhole nightmare or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Is the punch clock, punch clock, punch clock. Like nobody so, signed up for that. <laughs> no, that, that, that is totally true. Nobody wanted to sign up for that more or less signed up for it. Civilization bends us at this point to sign up for it, but. We're not given much of a choice. It's just, you have a choice of venue to a point, you know, it depends on how lucky you are, how much money your parents would made, how much, how you went to, if you went to college or not. So like, sometimes your, your nine to five is more cushy than others, but yeah, it really does feel like it's fake. Like it just feels different when you do something like gardening or growing food or learning how to do some of these tasks, it, it feels real. It's like it has a different like you're like this is this feels different why does it feel different what is what is this like it feels substantive it feels like you're you're doing something something's like words are not happening but <laughs> you said it Ellen. you said it right there 
um, it feels more real. It feels more real. Yeah. I mean, it feels real, period. It's definitely like sort of like a weird matrix feeling. Well, you had a little quote there. Oh, yes. Um, Barry from his letters with I, I just thought a this... lot of letters back and forth between Wendell Berry and Snyder. What was Snyder's first name? I don't remember. Um, I don't remember. But the quote's good. Yes. So, yeah, this is from a book of letters from Wendell Berry and a fellow other writer. And they're both sort of, of in different places and they have farms and they're sort of doing the same thing. And he put, do you think it could be a general rule, Barry asked Snyder towards the end of 1979, the only place one is urgently needed is at home. And I think it could be, I think it is. And I, I just really, really like that quote. I'll put the link to the book. Um, this is not the one I'm reading because there's no audible, but it's one of the ones that he quotes in the book that got me sort of looking for other books by Wendell Berry. So the, the next section is the barcode moment. Yes. There's a lot there. So just to, to quickly roll it down, he does a little comparison of uh, tying it into a biblical thing, which is interesting because at that point he wasn't even identifying religiously in his life in that sense. But um, he does talk a little bit about the barcode moment in reference to the Bible and sort of end time prophecy stuff. You had some quotes as per related to that. So, okay. So the barcode moment um, basically is two, two things. One is actually something he learned in Bible school, <laughs> Bible school, I think, or religion school is basically like there's a Bible quote in every barcode, there's the number 666 and you need a barcode to sell anything these days. And so basically uh, capitalism is Satan, which I find is hilarious. Yeah, he says it's not an unconvincing suggestion. Right, 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 right. And then the um, the other part of this is that, um, and here's another quote, um, we're already merging with our technologies. I sit in, I sat in pubs, I've sat in pubs with people who play with their smartphones rather than talk to me. Perhaps it's just me and walk down country lanes with people who are too busy tweeting and to notice the tweeting. 20 years ago, this stuff would have been unthinkable. 20 years time, it would look primitive. The other part of the barcode moment is when like technology sort of taking away our autonomy. Yeah, so you're like, okay, I'm out of it. I'm out of here. I'm going to live in the cabins in the woods. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it's because you're referring to the part of his quote where he says, um, it seems to me that a kind of strategic retreat is both the best way to ensure personal sanity and to keep the flame of a particular pre-machine vision of humanity alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But going back to the part where people are like always on their phones. Mm -hmm. So they've really seen this thing a lot at work and in coffee shops and people like sitting together and everyone's not talking and they're just looking at their phones and it's just really, really weird. And I often wonder if the people at the table have noticed how like kind of weird and strange and a bit off and a little dystopian and a bit scary it kind of seems. And I feel on a personal level, um, you know, really too pulled by nature, not to notice the tweeting, as he says. And I think that as like an herbalist, you know, on my best days, and then on my worst days, just another wage slave, you know, herbalists have you've trained yourself to look past all the latest technology, 
and all the layers of BS that sort of keep us from seeing what has been hidden underneath all that stuff. Yeah. And you can see the dandelion and the cracks of the sidewalk and all the mugwort that's grown in the green space in the middle of the four lane highway. Like, and I can't not see like the mullein, the bright yellow flowers that I'm going like 65 on the highway, you know, vroom, vroom, vroom. Um, and so once you learn this way of looking, it's hard not to notice what, you know, what you could, could not before. Yeah. Um, and, and while I think actually though, lots of technology is hurting us, uh, I'm also very grateful for some of it because I couldn't listen to music or books at work. Yeah. And um, it's been more than a lifesaver for me because I think I would just go insane if uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't do any of that stuff. And then um, we couldn't even do this podcast and uh, there's just so much more. And so it's very tricky to think about technology because humans have been using and creating technology for so long. Like everything's a technology that we've made pretty much. Like we're just sort of sitting on a pile of like. Yeah. From the moment we chisel the wheel or. Yes. Use the chisel. <laughs> exactly. So it's just really like. And so I think the question of what technology to keep and what and what not, and what kind of technology do we want to create? What kind of world do we want to live in? Uh, however, like, I think if one of the issues is most of us don't have a choice in what technology gets created yeah. and like what. In, in the in the sheer expanse of it, right? It's like, could we, could we, would there not be a way, you know, like, why is there always the next thing, right? Like, will we ever be satiated? Like, we had abilities to even like, text in some sense or like we had the phone but then we also had to text and phone and you know it's like we're always building on and building on and now it's to the point where it's like even a five-year-old has their own phone and tablet and it's like that is what's not sustainable every human being on the planet cannot live to those standards nor do so so it's like he's also asking do we even need to you know like wh why would there not be a middle ground, I guess, in that sense, to your point of the benefits of the technology and what it can do in connectivity to people is like to have some access to that without it all having to be this like personal free for all junk heap, you know, creating a junk heap and strip mining the entire planet for the materials to do so, you know. This is a personal view, of course, and one I've been developing for a long time, but it seems to me that a kind of strategic retreat is both the best way to ensure personal sanity and to keep the flame I mean, of particular like pre, yeah, pre-machine version of familiar life. We all choose our own personal versions. I've written about retreating and drawing several times before and has often brought down on my head accusations of defeatism and the like from activists minded but it's not about defeat or surrender. It's about pulling back to a place where you can find the breathing space to be free and human again. For all that, all else follows if you can pay attention. You know, I really do feel like that, the feeling of retreating and protecting something very important. It feels like slipping away. Um, and I think that not all of us have the luxury of being able to do a, a treat, a retreat, say mm -hmm. fully human, too many bills, you know, you can kind of do both in a way, 
you can, you know, have things in your life that remind you that you're human. You might have to try harder to remember the dandelions. Yeah, take a minute to actually look. Yeah. You know, after working in an environment so kind of alien from that, and you can bring in nature to your workplace. Um, like I'm always carrying around like crystals in my pockets. Um, if you have a desk, you can like put like wildflowers on it. You know, and I and I really like feel like on a, a side note that herb, herbs are sort of like a green compass, bringing us back to our past selves that we've lived when we've lived closer to the nature and maybe our nature as humans as well. The dandelion has been around a very long time. And sometimes I think it's like a kind of a time capsule. A little reminder time capsule for humanity. <laughs> I love yeah. that sentiment. Well, the whole idea of that the, that the plants are the green compass back to ourselves, yeah. We are to the final quotes to summarize. And um, this was the best one. It's the last uh, section of the withdrawal, um, which is his essay titled Dark Ecology, which I think is what kind of sparked off the Dark Mountain Project in a way, um, the thoughts therein anyway. And I, and I just think this is a good one to wrap up with because he kind of outlines just points and he's not saying everybody has to do this he's just saying this is what he's kind of come to um so this is your your final thoughts to leave you with what does the near future look like i would put my bets on a strange and unworldly combination of an ongoing collapse that will continue to fragment nature and culture and a new wave of techno green solutions being unveiled in the doomed attempt to prevent it I don't believe now that anything can break the cycle barring some kind of reset, the kind that we've seen many times before in human history, some kind of fall back down to a lower level of civilizational complexity, something like a, the storm that's maybe now visibly brewing all around us. If you don't like any of this, but you know that you can't stop it, then where does that leave you? The answer is that it leaves you with an obligation to be honest about where you are in history's great cycle and what you have the power to do and what you don't. And if you think you can magic us out of the progress trap with new ideas or new technologies, you're wasting your time. If you think that the usual campaigning behavior is going to work today where it didn't work yesterday, then you'll be wasting your time. And if you think the machine can be reformed, tamed, and defanged, you'll be wasting your time. If you draw up a great big plan for a better world based on science and rational argument, you'll be wasting your time. If you try to live in the past, you'll be wasting your time. If you were to romanticize that hunter gathering and send bombs to the computer store owners, then you're going to be wasting your time. And so I come to this point and I ask myself, what at this moment in history would not be a waste of my time? And I arrived at the five tentative answers. One, withdrawing. If you do this, a lot of people will call you a defeatist and a doomer and claim you're burned out. And they will tell you that you have an obligation to work for climate and justice and world peace and the end of bad things everywhere and that fighting is always better than quitting. Ignore them and take part in a very ancient practice and spiritual tradition, spiritual tradition, withdrawing from the fray. Withdraw not with cynicism, but with a questioning mind. Withdraw so that you can allow yourself to sit back quietly and feel and into it. Work out what is right for you and what nature might need from you. Withdraw because refusing to help the machine advance, refusing to tighten the ratchet further, is a deeply moral position. Withdraw because action is not always more effective than inaction. Withdraw to examine your worldview and the cosmology and the paradigm and the assumptions and the direction of travel. All real change starts with withdrawal. Two, 
preserving non-human life. The revisionist will continue to tell us that wildness is dead, nature is for people, progress is God, and we will continue to be wrong. There is still much remaining on the Earth's wild diversity, but it may not remain for much longer. The human empire is the greatest threat to what remains as life on Earth, and you're part of it. So what can you really do at a practical level about this? Maybe you can buy up some land and rewild it. Maybe you can let your garden just run free. Maybe you can work for conservation groups and set one up yourself. Maybe you can put your body in the way of a bulldozer. Maybe you can use your skills to prevent the destruction of yet another wild place. How can you create or protect a space for non-human nature to breathe a little easier? And how can you give something that isn't us a chance to survive uh, past our own appetites? Three, get your hands dirty. Root yourself into something. Practical work, some place, some way of doing. Pick up your scythe or your equivalent and get out there and do some physical work. Clean the air surrounded by things you cannot control. Get away from the laptop. Throw away the smartphone if you have one. Ground yourself to things and places. Learn or practice human scale convivial skills. By doing that, rather than just talking about it, do you learn what's real and what is not and what makes sense and what is just so much hot air? Four, insisting that nature has a value beyond utility. Tell everyone. Remember that, you're, that you are just one life form among many and understand everything has intrinsic value. If you want to call this ecocentrism or dopology, do it. If you want to call it something else, do it. If you want to look to tribal societies for inspiration, do it. If that seems too gooey, then just look up at the sky, sit on the grass, touch a tree trunk, walk into the hills, dig a garden, look at what you find in the soil, marvel at what the hell this thing called life could possibly be. Value it for what it is and try to understand what it is and have nothing but pity or contempt for people who tell you that its only value is in what they can extract out of it. And five, build refuges. The coming decades are likely to challenge much of what we think we know about what progress is and about who we are in relationship to the rest of nature. Advanced technology will challenge our sense of what it means to be human at the same time as the tide of extinction rolls on. The ongoing collapse of social and economic infrastructure and the web of life itself will kill off much of what we value. In this context, ask yourself, what power do you have to preserve what is of value? Creatures, skills, things, places. Can you work with others or alone to create places or networks that act as refuges from this unfolding storm? Can you think or act like the librarian of a monastery through the dark ages, guarding those old books as the empires rise and fall outside? that was such a great analogy mm -hmm. he says it will be apparent by now that for the last five paragraphs i've been talking to myself these are the things that make sense to me right now when i think about what's coming and what i can do still with some joy and determination if you don't feel despair in times like these then you're not fully alive but there has to be something beyond despair too or rather something that accompanies it like a companion on the road this is my approach right now it is i suppose the development of a personal philosophy for a dark time, a dark ecology. None of it's going to save the world, but there's no saving the world. It's the ones who say that, it's the ones who say there is, are the ones that you need to save it from. <laughs> All right, so. So you've got thanks. your little to-do list. No. But that was a nice point to reach at the end of section two of the book because it's setting the stage, I think, for the final section that we haven't got to yet. And But I also think it was finally him putting some things out there mm -hmm. 
beyond just the grant. Yeah. Like, here's something constructive. Yeah. Part three will be a couple months from now. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll have other things to throw into the middle, give you a little break, give you some time to digest this material. Right. And also, if you wanted to read the book and, and get ready to like follow along for part three, you have at least a couple months. So, but thank you everyone for joining us. I know it's been um, a very intellectual episode, a lot of things to think about. And please follow us on all of our social medias. And we'll talk to you next time. See you next time. Bye. We're withdrawing now. Yes, now we're, we are. We're definitely doing that. <laughs>